Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Diana Martinez, Education Director at Filmstreams, a nonprofit art house theatre in Omaha. Diana Martinez has a PhD in film and media studies from the University of Oregon, where she studied gender and sexism in the media industry. She has written for several publications on this topic, including Women in Hollywood, Dilaton Army, IndieWire, Slate, and The Atlantic. Diana is currently the Education Director of Filmstreams, Omaha's only nonprofit art house cinema. Diana, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me again. Off air, we were talking about the various subjects we could talk about. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't we start simple with something like, <laughs> how does film contribute to society at large? <laughs> and then your eyes grew wide, and um, I realized the enormity of that question. <laughs> yeah. But, but why don't I give you 60 seconds? To, okay. Uh, okay, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> but what do you think? How do, how do you reflect on that? Maybe that can just mm-hmm. be a, a start to the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I was recently like thinking about this for the next course that I'm going to teach about Generation X, kind of thinking through, you know, how how does film at once uh, shape a generation, shape ideologies within a certain time period, but then is obviously also influenced by the uh, ideologies and politics of the people who make it. So it's kind of this like really interesting like feedback loop in a way, in terms of how it contributes to society at large. Like it's the way that we see ourselves. Like it's it we see the world represented on screen and other worlds represented on screen, right? Ones that don't exist, um, and yet they are all still kind of adhering to politics and hierarchies that we have in our world now. So I think like it's at once like a really it can be like a really freeing, imaginative space for new ideas to kind of test things but mostly it's i don't know a reaction to what's happening in the world i was thinking about what are the films that perhaps have changed my view of the world Mm. and maybe what are those films that i've watched and felt some kind of affinity with because it spoke to me at a level that that said oh that's that's my life Mm -hmm. in there somewhere and maybe it's filled gaps in maybe in some kind of fantastical way it's filled a gap mm-hmm. in in my world so it's just thinking about that and I, I i certainly wonder about your take on that but maybe keeping it broader are there any films that maybe spring to mind that have changed the public discourse in a in a bigger way they've moved the needle of the you know society at large mm-hmm. so i specialize in like comedy and like women's roles within comedy so like when you ask that question like the film that was coming up for me was bringing up baby Catherine hepburn and carrie grant mostly because it was a film that was made during Catherine hepburn's career when she was called box office poison um so basically the roles that she played and the way that she was in the public was seen as like radically feminist, right? To the fact that she just wore like pants all the time and refused to wear dresses was just like really outrageous. Um, but bringing up baby was like this screwball romantic comedy and the screwball romantic comedy genre um, was really about this partnership 
of wits between the male protagonist and the female protagonist. And Catherine Hepburn was really one of these stars that showed that she could be an intellectual peer to her co-stars, to someone like Cary Grant. And that meant that she was just as witty, she was just as funny as them, and that was really important. And I think like that film now, like people touch back on as like really changing the romantic comedy genre just in general. Um, but for her and her career was incredibly helpful in having people see her as still a viable star, as one that was worthy of, you know, watching the things that she made. Um, which is really fascinating because I think now everyone just kind of takes for granted that she's this in this top echelon of stars. But there was a time when it was not at all um, guaranteed that she would have that place in history. How did that, do you think, change the public perception of either what women could be and were and maybe more narrowly the, the role women had in, in comedy mm -hmm. and maybe the role they had in challenging norms within the film industry? I mean, comedy has always been a really interesting space for women in particular, because historically, women haven't had a lot of agency in the Hollywood industry. But a lot of the women who have agency to be writers, producers, actors, all at the same time, tend to be comedians. So people like Lucille Ball, um, Mabel Normand, who worked with Charlie Chaplin. And I think my hypothesis as to the reason they were able to move so fluidly between all these different careers was because they were funny and nobody took them seriously. So in some way, like the, the comedy actually downplayed how much power and agency that they had. Um, and they were able to do all of these things that, you know, for someone who would be taken more seriously would be a serious affront to you know, the agency and power of male producers, of male directors, of the studio heads at the time. So, I mean, I think, I think comedy is simultaneously a place where women have a lot of agency and simultaneously a place that anytime you do comedy, people won't take you seriously. I, when, when I think back to uh, my childhood watching films on a rainy Sunday afternoon, and there were often many films from a 50s, 60s, 70s era, mm -hmm. And I reflect on those screwball comedies and what's coming to my mind is exactly what you're saying, just how smart and a step ahead mm -hmm. the women always seem to be compared to their almost screwball fool guy male yeah. co-star. And in some ways, I'm wondering if we've regressed mm. from, from that when women could appear, not just appear in terms of an aesthetic attraction in the in the film uh -huh. but were clearly when it came to the intellectual gifts the star in in this particular setting uh -huh. and it doesn't feel like the case now um, hmm. i think what's really interesting about the hollywood industry as it is today is that i think there are a lot of female comedians who are doing really great work and actually being taken seriously for all the work that they do but it's also a very small cohort so like the same people are getting the same jobs and doing the same work, right? So like Tina Fey will be making all the projects. Um, Issa Rae will be making all the projects that are supposed to represent, you know, black women. Um, but there's like very little opportunity for people outside of like five, you know, five women of color and five white women who are like doing all of this stuff. Um, so for me, it's always been really interesting how every few years or so, there's like huge pieces on like, you know, the female comedy renaissance or like, you know, women in power once again. 
Um, but it's always it's always the same women. So there's this kind of oversaturation of how much power women have in the media or the way that the media represents it. But really, you're talking about a handful of women who are making most of the projects that are in mainstream Hollywood anyway. So I had the benefit of being your student in a class at Filmstreams. Mm -hmm. It was a deep dive class about race and the music video. Yeah. And you began that class by showing us some, initially some some photographs mm -hmm. to demonstrate uh, how people understood that imagery could convey messages. And then, hey, presto, we now have the moving image and you can start mm -hmm. putting these things together and juxtaposing them and actually then putting soundtracks behind them in some way and starting to share all sorts of compelling, subversive, uh, motivational and surreptitious uh, narratives behind them. I'm wondering if going back to that thought about how has mm -hmm. film changed, how can it change society, mm -hmm. if I could invite you maybe just to begin from the beginning perhaps and, and <laughs> give us some indication of how film from its early days has, has always had the power to share a message for good and bad. Yeah. The history of film, of cinema, really begins with the technology being born, right? So guys like Thomas Edison, um, the Lumiere brothers, like really what they were using the camera for is to show people things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Um, so a lot of early films were what were kind of called like travel films. So they were either filmed on location in places like Morocco or, you know, other, other places in the Middle East, for instance. Um, or they, they're like these landscapes were recreated on set and then filmed. Um, and it was a way that people would kind of quote unquote get to know other countries, other cultures that they otherwise wouldn't have access to because, how are you going to get there? <laughs> like tra travel isn't very easy in the 1890s and the 1910s, right? Um, but what that did was it also like very early on cemented these stereotypes of African countries, Latin American countries, uh, Middle Eastern countries. And like those became like an inseparable part of like the grammar of film from the very beginning. Um, and that's just kind of like one example of the way that film was used to represent difference, right? Difference from your like white European moviegoer, the person who could afford to go see these moving pictures in a picture house um, and buy the coffee and the wine that went along with it and all that stuff. And honestly, like that hasn't changed a whole lot today. You know, if we think about the Oscar race, for instance, like the Films that are nominated, that are made and starring people of color, tend to be those that give, you know, a mainstream white audience an insight or a look into other cultures. And they tend to be quite stereotypical depictions of those cultures, right? So something like Roma, for instance, um, you know, is still adhering to a kind of idea of what, you know, life in Mexico is. You know, the same thing with, like, the struggles of the protagonist in Moonlight, right? He's struggling against this one stereotypical way of life and then, you know, his queerness, which is kind of framed as versus that kind of life. And so this, this look into other worlds, like, is, again, like, representation is really important because that's what film has always been for. And I don't really know how much the way that tool has been used, has changed a whole lot. 
are there more modern examples that you might think of that perhaps have done this representation of the other, enabling an audience to travel into some other experience that have done it well? Uh, you you mm. mentioned, for example, Roma, perhaps, while maybe a yeah. marvellous film, perhaps yeah. played on a slightly more obvious introduction to a non-Mexican mm -hmm. audience to that. Yeah. That's only good films. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, like, Moonlight and Roma are great films. I agree that they are. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I, I tell the story that my mom, who, you know, immigrated from El Salvador when she was... I don't know, in her late 20s, had no desire to see Roma. She was like, no, I've been poor. I don't need to see that film. Like, I know what this woman's life is like. I've lived it. But, I mean, is it useful for, you know, many people to see um, representations of, you know, Mexican characters that are just kind of like living honestly and just going about their day, like not adhering to any of these kind of Western stereotypes um, that we have of Mexican citizens and Mexican immigrants. Like, yeah, that's great. You know, but I think more and more as people of color make their own films that represent themselves and people like them, we're getting, I think, more honest representation of even things that might on the surface seem stereotypical. It raises the follow-on question, who is responsible for telling the story of a category, whether mm -hmm. it's a category of person or experience or emotion or place, and who does not have the permission or the right mm -hmm. or the ability mm -hmm. to tell that narrative. Mm -hmm. And I I know that's a hard question mm -hmm. and it's a vibrant debate, I think, now, but you possibly have a view on that. <laughs> um, I go back and forth on what that view is, actually. So part of it is framed with, you know, m my background is in academia. So I was teaching at the University of Oregon while I was getting my PhD there. And, you know, while I was there, and I don't think they would mind that I said that, but the only people who were teaching African-American literature in the department at that time um, was a white woman and a British man. And the question is always like, as much as you can understand the power dynamics and the history, and you can be a very responsible scholar, as they were, like I really respect them as scholars, there is something incredibly important about identity and experience to the work of these African-American writers, right? The writers themselves, like Toni Morrison, say, my work is for these people. It's about these people. And so as much as you can be a responsible scholar, there is still something, like there's a disconnect there. But I feel very uncomfortable saying that you can't study those things or love those things or even be good at talking about those things because of who you are. But then also as an educator, I was very aware that there would probably be the few students of color in the department on that campus who would be taking an African-American literature class. And it might be the only place where they could see someone who looks like them. And in that department, that wasn't happening. And that was also irresponsible, I thought. And so it's like the same thing with filmmaking, right? Like it's hard to say to a creative person, to an artist, that you can't make any kind of art that you want. But then you also know that some people more than others have that 
objectivity on their own work and understand boundaries in ways that other people do not. And so it's hard. Like, I think it's a, it's a, you know, maybe a case by case basis. Um, but also, you know, with someone like Sofia Coppola, for instance, you know, to say that she is not working on issues of race and class because she's focusing on white women, like that's also just not correct, right? We, we don't think that directors or writers who are writing about white people are not also writing about race and identity, and they are. Like, I think that's important to acknowledge too, right? That it's not that just some people get to um, do whatever they want and other people have to work on, you know, race and identity and all these things. They all are. It's just the way that we talk about them doesn't place that burden on people equally. I guess I want to step back a little bit and approach things a little more tangentially and ask if you remember the first film that you saw the more than just being entertained mm. or enjoying watching, mm -hmm. you felt catalyzed or compelled to appreciate film, the fact that this was film in some way. Mm -hmm. Do I remember that? I don't know if I remember that. I'm bad at these questions. Well, <laughs> I'm it's. I'm, I'm not even going to ask you the question about what's your favorite film. I just, oh God, unless you know it. Do you know it? Please don't ask me. Okay, question. I won't ask you that. Good. Thank God for I that. I have philosophical ideas against that question. Oh, you do? I okay. Do. Well, uh, <laughs> I know, Diana, that you have philosophical <laughs> objections uh -huh. to being asked a question like, what's your favorite film? So, yeah. so, what are those objections? I don't know if I've ever been asked. Well, okay. I feel as though I have rarely been asked that question and it hasn't been for the purpose of gauging how smart I am or how uh, thorough of a scholar I am, how uh, woke I am <laughs> with that question. Like, I think it's, it's searching for something and I kind of refuse to answer that question because of that. But then I also, like, I think the things that I really love are never things that will, I don't know, be validated by me saying that they're my favorite. You know, I'm a Latina who grew up watching telenovelas with my mom in Spanish. And I, you know, watch shows like Dawson's Creek by myself. And I unfortunately watched a lot of Woody Allen films when I was younger. And like all of those things things especially Woody Allen now will like never be taken seriously as art and I feel like answering that question I have to in some way kind of turn my back on the things that I actually like to kind of perform some kind of like elitism or to perform my education in a way that I just don't care for
touched a little bit on the real you mm-hmm. in a way that I think all of us are real and live real lives and, and then other people have expectations of us for their mm-hmm. own reasons. But you've touched on some of this kind of earthiness of the, the context that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about your context of your mm-hmm. childhood and, and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so my childhood, in terms of the things that I watched, I could watch anything I wanted. And I now realize what those things were. It was a lot of narco cinema that my parents just had on the television. I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't be watching that. Um, it was, you know, independent movies that were, at that time, showing a lot on, like, HBO and Showtime and, you know, the cable channels. Um, so my parents immigrated from El Salvador um, in the 80s. Uh, and we settled in LA for a while. Um, I have two older sisters. One is 10 years older than me. One's 14 years older than me. So I'm the super baby. Um, and I kind of just grew up watching whatever they were watching. So my parents were watching movies and stuff in English and in Spanish, in English to kind of learn the language. And my sisters were getting acclimated to going to middle school and high school in the U.S. after living in El Salvador. So they were kind of like learning what's cool. It was a lot of like MTV, spring break, things that as a seven-year-old child I shouldn't have seen probably. Um, But it really, now that I think about it, was like a very great atmosphere to just kind of discover what I thought was interesting you know because my parents had such varied interests i realized into like what they watched i think the first time i watched a woody allen film it was with my mom um which like why was she watching that i don't i don't know um you know and my i remember going to see true lies in the theater with my whole family because my dad loved arnold movies and action films and a lot of those things that we really enjoyed together have you know, kind of framed this idea that I have that nothing is off limits in terms of its like intellectual capacity. Um, like there are ways that you can approach action films that are like super interesting. If you think about masculinity and male bodies, about, you know, the cycle of aging, like male heroic figures um i'm obsessed with the rock now because just he's a new wave of action star that we haven't had in a very long time which is like really interesting as to why um and i think like as i was in college and then certainly in grad school like started kind of thinking through all the stuff that i was allowed to watch when i was a kid And really thinking about how that idea of the popular and the mainstream being inseparable from the independent and the art house, that for me is like so important, that crossover. And that's kind of how I try to teach, that there's um, very little or nothing that's off limits in that way. Well, I mentioned earlier the class you did about deep dive into Mm -hmm. uh, race in the music video. And I think that's a great example of how important social commentary and narratives and deeply troubling historical and present day issues can be discussed and perceived through the lens of what is essentially in some ways just pop music, R&B and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually like comes from, I was really lucky that when I was in grad school, I also had like a team of professors and advisors around me who understood that conflation of the popular in the art house. Like it wasn't a very elitist program that I was in, which was great. Um, my One of my dissertation committee members actually 
taught music video. She actually is writing a book on hair, race and hair and popular culture. Um, Priscilla Ovalle is her name. And, you know, there were few film faculty. I was housed in an English department. Nobody really knew what I was doing. I really thrived, I think, probably because of the way I grew up. Now I'm realizing really th- like creatively thrive in a place where I don't have a lot of supervision. What was the transition? What, what were these moments of self-awareness as mm-hmm. you were growing up where you transitioned from this exploration of all sorts of different um, film media and film content into this place where you decide that being a scholar of film is what you're going to do? So, mm-hmm. so what was that period? What, what were the motivations? Yeah. So for a long time, I didn't know that that was even a thing you could do. I didn't learn about that until I was an undergrad. I had um, a really great professor. He was a medievalist of all things, um, but he also taught the film classes um, in my undergrad. I went to Cal State San Bernardino, um, and we uh, he taught an adaptation course, and we read Beowulf and watched Alien as an adaptation of Beowulf, which is not like a traditional thing to pair together, although it does map on like amazingly. Um, and that was kind of when I, as an English major, was like, oh, like the analysis that I'm doing that I really enjoy doing with literary texts, I can also do it with the thing that I enjoy more, which is just watching things. <laughs> um, and then for kind of like the last two years of undergrad, I just kind of followed him around. David Marshall was his name. Took every class that he taught and then decided that I was going to go to grad school. Um, Part of that was also motivated by my family being very education focused. Both my older sisters had master's degrees and I was like, I must one up them. I must get a PhD. So I did. (laughs) That was how it happened. What I'm wondering is what is the relevance of theater? Mm-hmm. in a modern society, whether it's mainstream or art house. Mm-hmm. What's the relevance when there is so much access digitally and so much access uh, to a massive amount of content visually? So why are theaters important? Um, I think the communal experience of watching something is actually really important because of conversation that happens afterwards. Like I very rarely watch something by myself and then know exactly what I think about it aesthetically, politically, like right off the bat. Like I need to talk to someone else who's seen it in order to just kind of verbalize my own thoughts. And I don't know if that's just because of the fact that I've, you know, been trained in a certain way, right? To have a discourse, to, you know, have that community that you talk about ideas with. But I do think that it helps just people understand what the heck it is they're watching, especially if it's an art house film that isn't, um, you know, necessarily apparent as to what it's about or what it's trying to say. I mean, I think there are ways that teens in particular have become really adept at creating that communal experience outside of a theater, um, which is fine. But I also resist the idea that the theater is dying. Theater has been dying since VHS and it, DVDs and laser discs, um, and I think it'll be fine because I think that that communal experience is still really important to people. Like there are things that you just want to see with other people, 
that you want to see much larger and in better sound than you can possibly afford for a lot of us. I think, I don't know. I like, I want to give like a really grandiose statement for it, but it's also just like really cool to just see something so aesthetically excessive on a huge screen in Dolby sound. And I think that that aesthetic experience is something that people like for some reason downplay all the time. Um, It's not even necessarily that that's the way that the director intended, because we know that now that is in fact, not the way some directors intended for their stuff to be seen, but it's still a really freaking cool way to watch something. And that experience should be like cherished. So this idea of a communal experience, but the facility and the potential to have some exploratory examination and conversation Mm -hmm. sort of before, in some ways during, afterwards, and all the wraparound possibilities inherent in that, I think might be typically more associated with an art house Mm -hmm. theater. Yeah. Is that partly why you work at an art house theater? Even though I think like most of us, your tastes are eclectic (laughs) and um, they can go to what might be with air quotes, proverbially low as well as to the high. Mm -hmm. Or is there some other reason? No, I mean, I I think I think that's true that, you know, especially film streams is so good at like facilitating conversation around film like that is literally a part of its mission. And that's not a part of the mission of a lot of other art houses, honestly, but also. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that that kind of communal experience doesn't happen in a mainstream theater, right? Just like cheering for an Avenger when he kills the person it's supposed to kill. Like that feeling, right? Like I just watched Hustlers, that Jennifer Lopez movie, right? And the communal experience of watching Jennifer Lopez strip in front of you, (laughs) like it's fun and it's like pleasurable. Um, And so like, I definitely think that happens, but like, the conversation aspect, especially having that kind of elevated conversation about something that maybe you wouldn't normally take seriously. I think art houses are a place where that can happen, but especially for audiences who go to art house theaters, because that's kind of what they're searching for, right? They're searching for being challenged or watching things or thinking of things that maybe they haven't before. And I think it would be not like hard or difficult, but it might be a stretch to ask someone who's ever gone to an art house theater to take a chance on it. But that's not necessarily what I'm the most interested in. Like I'm interested in expanding people's ideas on like what should be in an art house, right? What is art?
want to invert this in a way. Mm-hmm. And as a member of a, a large community, the Omaha metropolitan area, let's just say around a million people. Yeah. And I want to get your take on whether we as a community are aware of how lucky we are to have someone like you, well, not someone like you specifically, (laughs) to have you doing what you do with film, with social pressing issues, with pure entertainment, and the framing of a space for us to have some kind of conversation with those topics and with each other about those topics. So what is your take on on just how lucky we are to have (laughs) you doing this? You're the most lucky, Stuart. Um, (laughs) I feel very, very lucky. I don't know. Like, again, like I... I resist this idea that it's me, right? Like, there are other people who could easily do this job. Um, My job, you know, as much as I'm, like, doing this interview and everything, like, isn't really to be, like, a personality or, like, a person in Omaha. Um, What I hope to do more than, like, impress anyone or anything is to really make people feel confident in their abilities to talk intelligently about things they've seen i don't know it sounds kind of banal but it's also i think like really important because i think especially like adults like are rarely challenged in that way they've rarely challenged themselves in that way and nobody gives praise to adults in the way that like a child you're always like oh my god you're so brilliant you're so smart all these things but like an adult never gets that kind of satisfaction that they've you know applied their intelligence to something outside of their job i understand though how that kind of intellectual pursuit takes a backseat to a lot of people's daily lives, right? Like if I am a single mother who is worried about where food for her child will come from, like maybe that's not what I'm seeking, you know, that kind of like intellectual validation. Like I just want some food and some money for my kids. So I don't know, like I, I think there is this, like as much as what I do is in important i feel right like this these education efforts like i also do understand that it is a privilege that some people have and some others don't so and i don't begrudge anyone for not knowing what film streams is not knowing who i am for not thinking that they're so lucky because they just have other many more important things to think about i mean this is you know as much as we want to be accessible It is also just not in everyone's life at this moment to have the kind of conversations that we have that are more theoretical and philosophical than like material. I completely accept everything you said. And I fully acknowledge that other people's lives and interests and desires and passions are many and diverse. And so I'm completely in agreement with you. That's it. I do want to build on this idea that there is still an opportunity that is mm-hmm. made available for our personal and communal enrichment mm-hmm. and that you're a part of making that possible with film streams. Um, no, I mean, I completely understand, you know, what you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is also not to advocate like, let's get rid of arts funding because these people have more interesting, important things to think of, right? Like, that's the other way that what I just said can be taken. And that's not at all what I mean. Um, But again, like representation is important 
but it is also it is not real life <laughs> and you know and i think this is another part of like my resisting thing i just like resist everything i do and everything i am but just like as soon as i you know start thinking about like the power of film all of these things you also have to remember like it is entertainment it is representation right as much as that film um connects to these things that are happening in omaha it is not the thing that happened in omaha right it is powerful because it brings up these conversations about real worlds and like material events that are happening um and i think that sometimes especially when we're asking films to you know be more moral or ethical in their representation and all of these things it is entertainment like it is not teaching you that is not its sole purpose right and i think demanding film to do that to be instructive in that way can also be quite um destructive to just art generally if <laughs> i wave my wand said the one thing you cannot be mm -hmm. in connection with film is a scholar mm -hmm. and teacher of mm -hmm. it. in your imagination what what role would you like to have in relation to film mm -hmm. that is not being a scholar or teacher of it? Uh, I would be an agent. And why? <laughs> um, because I feel like deep down, I'm just like very terrible. <laughs> Lack of ethics. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I don't know. So agents, um, part of what I wrote my dissertation about was about agents uh, because they feel like they are a part of the industry that people rarely think of as having creative control or decisions and they completely do so for example there are like three to five agents in all of america that handle 85 percent of the top comedians in the country that means that like Will Farrell's agent at one point was the same as all like Vince Vaughn and all these other guys that he was working with. And there are certain contractual decisions they can make called packaging, which if you can put them together, sell their products to a studio and they get tons and tons of money. And that's how we got like Dodgeball and Anchorman and like an entire cycle of films that really changed comedic sensibilities at that time. They were really contractual decisions that were being made by agents so agents have a lot more creative control than we think and they're also the place where like if people don't have agents they can't get jobs and it's incredibly important to think of that before we even begin demanding for more diverse casting practices right if those people can't get agents then where do they come from? <laughs> like, who are like who are these people that were supposed to cast lead, casting for these jobs? Um, so I think an agent as a gatekeeper is like a really interesting position that I think is um, definitely overlooked within film scholarship. But I just think we don't think about all of these people behind the scenes who have more power than the people in front of the camera. And yet we demand a lot of the people in front of the camera and we don't demand as much from the people behind the scenes because we don't know about them. We don't know what they do. As a sort of final question, I'm, I'm just wondering, not asking you about a, a favorite film, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering if you personally have had a film that has, um, that has you know, changed, changed your life or changed how you've seen the world in a particular way, mm -hmm. or if you have any particular 
films that that you would just for a general listening audience that we don't mm-hmm. know who's listening mm-hmm. if you just think oh there's some films that i would recommend that people should watch for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons mm-hmm. oh the the film list here we go um i do think that everyone should watch marie antoinette by sofia coppola um that is i think actually one of my favorite films because i feel like no one else could have made that film but Sofia Coppola. And that has, is becoming more and more of a thing that I realize is like really important, right? Not just like how technically great or how aesthetically wonderful is this thing, but it is, is it actually like this person's vision? Um, and I think that film is actually like her vision. I would also, I also really loved Lady Bird. By Greta Gerwig. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival a couple years ago. And I just remember that being like a really great experience. I was sitting next to a lot of women. We were crying because it's a relationship between a mother and daughter. Um, but she's also a writer and director, actress who I think until then was undervalued in her um, collaboration with director Noah Baumbach. And it was a moment where I was proud of her that I was like, this is the film I wanted her to make because it's a great film. And now people can stop not taking her seriously. Um, so I really love that film. Um, if we're going back to older films, I would recommend the red shoes. Um, it is just a stunning film to look at. It's about a ballerina. There's some red shoes that are devilish. Um, it's, like an aesthetic explosion, which is also kind of the types of films that I tend to like. And then there's also this Japanese film called House uh, by the director Nobuhiko Obayashi. It is a crazy movie. You will not know what you will have watched. Uh, but I think like it it is a test of will <laughs> to watch that film because it's just so crazy and you're like, what's happening? Um and I think just like getting through that, you will see, I don't know, like how, how deep in the film world you can go. So those are, those are my four picks. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been Dr. Diana Martinez, Education Director at Film Streams, Omaha's nonprofit art house theatre. Diana, again, thank you so much. Thanks, Stuart. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to ask me something else, actually. <laughs> like. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.